I could tell you their names. I could tell you when they're born, when they trust in Christ, a lot about their families. So these are, these are my friends. Most of my closest friends in the world are really in Japan. My wife and I are planning to retire there. Of course, both our kids there and are married to Japanese, and our grandkids are there. And hopefully we can be of help to some Japanese church until the day we die. Hope we don't go kooky. If not, they can send us back, I suppose. But um, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for supporting us through these years. While you have been sleeping primarily, uh, we've been extending your ministry to the country of Japan. And often you don't even realize that you're actually working through your giving in Japan. And thank you. Thank you. You'll meet these people someday in heaven, a lot of them, where we'll be with people from every kindred and tongue and nation under heaven, won't we? And we're looking forward to that because... Uh, Heaven is going to be people from everywhere. It's going to be really cool. Uh, Looking forward to it. uh, If you could take your Bibles. and uh, Oh, I uh, turn with you to Mark chapter 6. And while we are, I'm going to just say a couple things as we go through. First, we are in the very bottom tip of Japan. If you have ever met a missionary to Japan, unless they're with ABWE, our mission, there's two other couples down there, they live hundreds of miles north of where we are. Somehow we're down there where this isn't anything else. There's one Church of Christ couple in our state, and that's it, of missionaries. So, you know, have you ever met so-and-so? Well, they're hundreds of miles north of where we are. We probably haven't and really don't know them. Uh, most all the missionaries in Japan are quite north of where we are. We're down the bottom ship tip. Japan is shaped like a banana. We're in the bottom tip of the banana. Our next slide, if you would. There you go. Our family, all of them in Japan, our daughter and our son are both married to um, Japanese, and our grandkids are there as well. Our son is not a missionary. He's a pastor in Japan. There's a great shortage of any sort of leadership, and the church that he's at now was without a pastor for 17 years. It was down to about six people, Um, and uh, he graduated from seminary here in the States, married a gal from Japan, went back, and they had saved their money for 17 years so they could pay him right off, oddly enough. And uh, he, his church is now quite large by Japanese standards, 50 to 60. Almost all doctors or nurses are PhDs, are people married to doctors, nurses, or PhDs. And he's fairly well known. People ask him to come speak and stuff. He's about six foot six, a little bit over six foot six. Uh, yeah, I can't beat him in basketball at all at all. And uh, there you go. Next, next slide. Uh, that's, that's a Sunday, you know, a little about a year ago at our church. And people say, wow, there's a lot of people there. Well, there really are. Uh, the average church in our, in our state, and there's about 60 total in the whole state, is about 15 or 16. We have about 0.1% Protestant or less. And uh, therefore, you'll have far more churches just in uh, Huntsville than you would in our entire state easily. And some of your largest churches would have more than all the people who profess Christ in the entire state. So, uh, yeah, that's a good thing. About half the people there are unsaved, which is very common in our services. Next and uh, this is where we're going, Mark chapter 6. You're at Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And it's an honor to be here this morning. Good to be with you. Thank you for being here in the midst of the great coronavirus crisis. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And straightway, he, that's Jesus, constrained, he forced his disciples, to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. They're sort of on the western, southern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's telling them to go sort of the eastern, sort of northern side. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, 
the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and it was about the fourth watch of the night, which somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Obviously, they didn't have wristwatches. So you're talking of a wider period of time, but somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Of the watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when he, they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them in the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. This is a story that was told also in Matthew and in John in different ways. And we're going to look at it today and talk about missions as well. Before we do, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for this church, their kindness to us. Lord, we love you, and I pray that you'll change us and start with me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you listen to a lot of especially American speaking, preaching, and listen to a, read American books that are Christian, you may get the impression that Jesus Christ is primarily our great cheerleader. He's saying, you go, man. I'm with you. Give me a B. Give me an I. Give me an L. Give me an L. He's with you, and he's beside you, and he's just encouraging you all the time, and he wants you to do the best you can be. And, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that, because the Lord does encourage us. He does comfort us in our infirmity. But as you read the Bible, you realize that Jesus also rebukes us. He loves us enough that he calls us to repentance. And he also uses trials in our life to change us. We're going to talk about that today. And actually, as in every trial, this trial, the, the Lord wanted to teach the disciples at least two things. One is his compassion, compassion, and the other is trust and belief and faith in the Lord's glorious might. Before we look at this passage, we need to look at a, another passage just for a few seconds, and that's James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Some of you could probably quote this verse, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read it. If you go to the next slide, and you can just pat through these for a second for me. He's telling us about trials, and he says, My brethren, so he's talking about Christians, right? My brethren, and you're for Christian, he's talking to you and me. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Uh, Actually, interestingly enough, after my six years of Greek, I can tell you that the word trials and temptation in the Greek New Testament are exactly the same Greek word. Isn't that interesting? So in this case, you're talking about trials, not temptations to sin. You know that by context and also by the use of the early church fathers. In other words, he's saying these are good things, and they're things that God uses to make you more mature, more like himself, and, and, and prepare you for heaven. And he tells us at least six things about these trials that the Lord brings into our life. And here they go, one after another. First, they're unavoidable. It doesn't say if you fall into trials. It says when you fall into trials. If you haven't fallen into trials, just wait, you will. They come in various shapes and sizes. It says uh, various are, are divers' temptations. 
there are different types of temptations, and yours may be very different from mine. Thirdly, trials are una- often unexpected. It says when you fall. We usually don't fall on purpose. We fall unexpectedly. Fourthly, your response to your trials is your responsibility. You're supposed to count them joy. And fifthly, it doesn't say they are joy. It says you are supposed to count them or consider them joy. But today, this directly connects the passage we have today, so I'm going to settle here for a few seconds. The sixth major thing is whether trials teach us something. We become mature. We come, become more like Christ. We grow through these trials depends on our reaction. Notice what he says. He says in verse 4, but let patience have her perfect work. In other words, trials should produce patience. You let them have their perfect work. In other words, you have a responsibility. Here's what can happen in the midst of our trials, and I've done all these things so I can talk about them quite freely. Here they go. Next slide. We can quit or run. We can give up. We can worry. We can get angry, angry at people or angry at God. We can fall into self-doubt or self-pity. And if and when we do these things, and I have done them, and you probably have as well, here's what happens. We take this trial the Lord has given us to make us more like Jesus Christ, prepare us for heaven, make us mature, and we just waste it or throw it away. And sometimes what happens to happen is the Lord has to say, okay, you didn't get it that time, let's go again. Sometimes you wonder why you have repeats. You know, this is a do-over, man. You didn't get it. Let's try it again. And we're going to see back in Mark chapter 6, the Lord using a trial in the lives of his 12 disciples because of something they hadn't learned already that he was trying to teach them. So if you go with me back to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to stay there the rest of the time. We won't flip back and forth. Mark chapter 6. We're going to learn what God was trying to teach them and what he is, our Lord is trying to teach us as well. Good stuff, by the way. Good stuff. Let's see how the Lord used trials in the disciples' life and taught them something, what he's trying to teach us as well. First, next slide. Only as we persevere, I'm sorry, the trials we meet are part of the Lord's plan to discipleship, disciple us. Look at verse 45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go on to the other way side to Bethsaida. First, notice what he said. It doesn't say the disciples were all about going over the other side to Bethsaida. They weren't. What had happened is they had already rowed down, if you read the rest of the chapter, they had already rowed down that day. They had all rowed down to this, this desert area. They were going to have a vacation. They were going to chill for a while. They'd been very busy. Jesus said, let's go aside and rest. So they went to this, they rowed their little boat down there to the side there where nobody was, and at least 5,000 men and, of course, some women and children showed up as well, right? You know the story. And Jesus, as you recall, made a little bit of bread and a few fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people and more. Have you ever fed 20 people, 30 people, 40 people, 100 people? You could imagine, that was a big day. And then he taught them. And they were with people all day. 
I don't know about you. You know, they're, they're people, people, non-people, people. I am only slightly a people person. I mean, I go out of my way to talk to people and all that, but after a day of being with people, I'm done. My wife now, she would take morning to evening just talking to people and listening to people. She'd be good. I get to about, you know, six or seven. I'm like, okay, that's enough people, okay? This depends on who you are. But they were with people all day. They were carrying baskets of food back and forth. They were gathering it up. Remember the story. And now it's getting towards evening. Because Jesus is about to send the people home. They weren't at their home. They were out in the boonies, so they had to get home. So he couldn't wait until it got dark. They didn't all have their little maglites, you know. So this was before night. So it's still light out. And, and Jesus says, I'm going to send all the people home. So let's, pick, let's picture in our mind that it's, oh, at the latest, it's like 6 o'clock, okay? Jesus is going to send the people home. And he says to the disciples, okay, I want you to get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. And what would you say? I'd say, I've had a big day. We rode down here to take a rest. Then all these people showed up. We've been fussing with them all day, feeding them, carrying the baskets around, talking to people. You know, this big teaching thing going on. It was a big day. Couldn't we just sit here and rest? Isn't that what you'd say? That's what they said too. So Jesus said, no, 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 no. You get in the boat, and, and I'm not going with you, by the way. You get in the boat, and I want you to row back up to Bethsaida, which is a good little ways. You go up there, and I'm just going to stay here. And they weren't all excited about that. Because what it says here in verse 45 is, he constrained the disciples to get in the ship. See, they weren't like, okay, that's what we want to do tonight. We want to row up to Bethsaida. Which sort of tells you what's happening here, because let's say this is six. I'm just, I'm just picking six arbitrarily. It could have been five, it could have been seven. Depends when the sun went down at that time, I don't know. But let's say it was six. By the time we meet these disciples again, it's somewhere in the next morning, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. In other words, they have been rowing for at least, let's say, nine hours. And if you've ever seen the Sea of Galilee, which I, my, my daughter lived on the edge there while she was getting her master's at a kibbutz on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's not that big, but they've been out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee rowing for nine hours. You want to use one of those stepmasters or those little rowing machines, you can just row for nine hours. These guys had, must have had real muscles, you know. They had to been really tired. And they weren't all excited to go anyway. Why were they in the middle of the lake rowing against the wind and the waves for six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours? Jesus sent them there. They, they weren't there by accident. They were in the midst of a trial because Jesus specifically put them there. He wanted to teach them something. Now, I don't think every trial that comes in your life is necessarily Jesus putting you in a trial to teach you something. I think there are some effects of sin. People do get sick. I mean, there could be, it could be your sin. I've been in trials because I'm an idiot occasionally or because of my own sin. That can happen. But there are times in your life that Jesus specifically will put you in a trial to teach you something you can't, you can't learn any other way or you haven't learned any other way. You can't learn it from going to school. No matter how many years of seminary, you're not going to get it. You have to have this trial. That's true of every single one of us as a Christian. And I don't know if you have a toolbox. I have a toolbox. We've, we've had three building projects I've also, for all these years, taken care of our camp in Japan. I'm Mr. Sunday Carpenter guy. I got the pass-load nail gun and the little nail guns, and I got everything. Man, we got it over the years. I've just been collecting it. 
And I love building things. And I have a toolbox. If you have a toolbox, you know that in your toolbox, I don't know about yours, I try to keep mine neat, but the, the stuff I use all the time is on the little top shelf. You know, it's got the little thing pulls out. I got the major tape measure and a couple of screwdrivers and a, 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 a knife and, you know, stuff up in the top. And then somewhere buried down the bottom is the stuff I don't use quite as often. You know, my wire stripper's down there because I don't do that much electrical, but it's down there, but I have to sort of dig it out to get to it, you know. If God, or if the Lord has a toolbox in your life, trials are up on the top shelf. Reading the Bible, you find that's the case. We don't like to think that way, but this is God's blessing in our life to make us more like Christ, right? Let's go on. Secondly, secondly, only as we persevere in the midst of trials, you got a couple clicks there to get to where I am, only as we persevere in the midst of trials, where we learn what the Lord wants to teach us. Let's go back to verse 45. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get in the ship and go to the other side before into Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And we get down to verse 48. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And he, about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them. In other words, they'd been out there for, oh, let's say at least nine hours, rowing. I don't know about you, but I know me. If I was out there rowing, I'd get like an hour, two hours. And I know Jesus said, go to the other side of the lake. I'd know that, right? But here's what I would say. Would you say this? I'd say, man, he didn't know that it was going to be like this. We're not getting anywhere. Let's just go back, explain to Jesus that the weather and the wind and everything was the wrong way. We're just going to wait here. Tomorrow morning, we'll take another shot, right? What's so important that we get to Bethsaida tonight? It's really not that big a deal. We've been at this for five, six, seven, eight, nine hours. Let's just turn around, go back. When we meet Jesus over there, we'll just tell him that, hey, man, we didn't make it. It was, it was, the weather was wrong, and we'll just take another shot, you know? If they would have done that, what would they have learned through this trial? Nothing. Nothing. They wouldn't have seen God's power. They wouldn't have seen the Lord's glory. They wouldn't have learned the compassion. They wouldn't have learned of his glorious might. They would have learned nothing. Same thing with me. Same thing with you. I have wanted to quit as a missionary more times than I can count. I mean, you think, you know, you see, you see these little slide presentations are sort of your best foot forward things. It doesn't tell all the miserable times, the depression, the times I curled up in a blanket in the closet and just didn't come out for a day. I searched on the internet for how you commit suicide. I've been there. I really have. And you probably have too, sometime in your life. If in the midst of the trials, you just say, okay, poor me, this is miserable, I don't want to go on, and you quit, you won't see, see, the, see the glory, man. Just don't see the glory. And, you know, and we're not there for us anyway. We're there for the glory of God, right? What would they have learned and experienced if they turned back and given up? Nothing. Same for us. Keep on in the midst of trials. Thirdly, thirdly, when we're in the midst of trials, Jesus knows and cares. Look at verse uh, 46. And when he had sent them away, he departed unto a mountain to pray. Uh, uh, if you read the New Testament, you find Jesus went to a mountain to pray a few times. Every time, either directly or in context, he was praying for the disciples. 
I think this is clear too. See, he had wanted to teach them something through the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And we're getting there. We haven't got there yet. Through the miracle of the loaves and fishes, they hadn't gotten it. They needed to get it desperately, but they hadn't gotten it yet. See, Jesus just began his ministry in his first three, three and a half years. In fact, Luke says, this is what Jesus began to do and to teach because he continued through disciples and he continues it to this day through us. And to turn over the whole work to the disciples, they had to be prepared. They had to get something. They had to get some really basic things. And if they didn't get them, they weren't going to be able to continue the work that the Lord had for them. It was crucial that they got these things, and they didn't get them yet. And they're going to meet a trial. So Jesus was up there praying for them, right? Heavenly Father. Same words we use, right? Our Heavenly Father. You know, they are in trials now. They have something they desperately need to learn. Help them not to give up. Help them to stick with it. Help them to learn that compassion. See your glory. See your power through this. And not only that, he, of course, it says the fourth watch to the right, he saw them out on the lake. Well, this is the, this is the site of omniscience. You know, he's up on a mountain, it's dark, it's windy, it's probably rainy, it's, you know. He didn't look over the lake, you know, I mean, what do you see that way far off? I mean, he, this, he knew they were out there, right? He goes walking towards them. Same for us. I, I read this from Matthew Murray McShane. Years ago, one of the first books I gave to my wife was the memoirs of Matthew Murray McShane. He said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that good? Good stuff. A lot of good stuff. Okay, we're finally getting to where I'm getting because this is a missions message, right? You know, missionaries are supposed to have a missions message. He wanted to teach them at least two things through this experience. Two things. And we're going to talk about those two things for quite a while. Don't worry, I'm not going to get you out too late. Nobody has ever said, oh, that was a good message and was really long. But I always love them. You know, say, I wish you had preached longer. That's, that's, that's occasionally you'll hear that. I've only had an encore once. But that, that, we won't only even go there. The first thing he wanted to teach them was Compassion. Compassion. You know, you get a key what's going on here in verse 52. Look at verse 52 again. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. What's happening here? And you start to get a little bit of the key here in verse 48 and 49. 48, I'm going to read. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night... He cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and notice the next words, aren't they interesting? And would have passed by them. Let me repeat that again. And would have passed by them. What's happening? They're out in the sea. They've been rowing for hours. Many hours. They're tired. They're not making any headway. And here they are. And here's Jesus. He's just walking along like they're not even there. He's just sort of ignoring them. See him? They're over there. And, and we want him to run up to the boat and sort of like, you know, say, let me give you a massage, man. I'm sure your muscles are tired. You keep going there. Hey, give me an oar. Let me get in there and start, you know, rowing with you. Maybe I could push the boat a little bit. Right? Isn't that what we think should probably happen? 
And that's Japanese sign language. We always point to your nose for a guy. You know, you point to me. You know. Wouldn't that what we think? Jesus is going to be out there going, Hey, Peter, hang in there, man. John, you are doing it, man. Just keep at it. We're going to get there, man. There was none of that. Jesus is just walking by like they're not even there. Ignoring them. Why did he do that? He was trying to teach them something that he tried to teach them just a few hours before at the feeding of the 5,000. If you take your Bibles again and look at uh, chapter 6, verses 32 through 33, just a few hours earlier, 32, um, I'm going to start reading. And they, that's the disciples and Jesus, departed into a desert place by ship privately. And, and, and the people saw them departing, and you see it, they all came running over, right? Verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion, love and action. He saw this tremendous group of needy people, both physically and spiritually, and he felt compassion on them. What the disciples see when they saw all those people coming? Not compassion. Look at verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place. Now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country and get some food. See? He's saying, Man, these people are, you know, we had this, this, this nice day off plan. We're going to Disney, man. And then all these people show up. I remember Becky and I, I, I don't know if I've ever told this story anywhere, but Becky and I, we were in Japan for five years, never took any sort of vacation, which was stupid. And I had this really good Japanese doctor friend. And I, every Saturday, he'd come over to my house and give me a uh, tenteki chusha, a, uh, a IV feeding of vitamin B and all sorts of stuff so I'd have enough energy to go on Saturday. I was just, I was just barely dragging by. I mean, I really was. And, uh, and one day he took out 500 bucks and he gave it to me. He said, you and your wife can take your kids and you go on a vacation, which from then on I did every year because I thought I was stupid. But it was sort of funny. We, we, we got prepared. And we got ready to go. And I still remember, so funny, one lady who almost never showed up. One of those people, you know, people show up at your door and they just sit and they talk to you for the next six hours and you can't get them to go anywhere. She appeared. There she is. And, you know, she's not a Christian. What do you do? So we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked until into the night, you know, and finally the poor lady went home. And I still remember that lady. This happens, you know, it does. And, you know, you're supposed to feel compassion, but really I was thinking, I wish she'd leave. I wish she'd leave. Well, that's, that's where they were. You know, send them away. Jesus looked at these same people, and, and he saw their needs. We do the same thing. Those people, I wish they'd go away. They're taking our jobs, or you know, they're ruining our past property values, or they just are different. They, I'm not comfortable with those people. We've always had deaf people in our church, and I have many times had people from the church come and say, I wish, we didn't have, I wish you'd send those deaf people away. They just make me feel uncomfortable. I can't communicate with them. I'm just uncomfortable with the deaf people in the church. Send them away, man. Let them go. You know, every time you meet a trial, you learn some compassion. If you meet a compassionate person, you know they've had some trials. I remember I donated a kidney to my brother. I'd never been in the hospital a day in my life. Next morning, my wife wasn't there. Nobody was there. You know what they do. I have a a scar from here to here. I mean, you know, it was a big thing, taking out a kidney and giving it to my brother. The next morning, they got me up, and they took me to this little stool in front of a, a glass with a sink so I could brush my teeth or whatever. And then the, the nurse left me, of course. 
And I'm sitting on the stool, and I wanted to get up and go back to the bed, but I was just weak as water, and I just sat there and I went, help, 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 for about an hour, right? Finally, somebody came and got me back to the bed. I always remember that, because before that, I'd never had really much compassion for people in the hospital, because I'd never been in the hospital, right? Jesus took this experience that the disciples had with the people that needed feeding, and he just turned it around. You know, they were saying, send them away. And here's Jesus. He's walking on the lake, and they're out there just, just, just rowing away. Just turn the whole tables on them. See what it, you know, it's easy to feel compassion for me, isn't it? They need to learn what it feels like to be ignored and unappreciated and just, just, just they're not even important. And, and they need to learn compassion. So do we. So do we. I, um, compassion drives everything, really. Actually, the main reason we're in Japan is because we want to see people praise the living God. But the second reason is compassion. Compassion. There are just so many people there. Where everywhere, everywhere I go, everybody I talk to, I mean, pretty much you go in the store, you go anywhere you go, and you do this in America too. You look around and you think, how many of these people, if they were to die today, would be in hell for all eternity? And I know I can't save them all. I can't force anybody to believe. I try to be as winsome as I can, share the gospel as many as I can. I grieve every, over everybody who refuses. But, you know, some people get saved, and that's, that's why we're there, and it's because I just I feel compassion. That's why I, why I want to die there, because, you know, there's so many people there that just really have never heard, and there's so many pe- few people reaching. That's my chance to win one more, win one more, win one more. Uh, compassion drives giving. And actually, it's all based on the great command, right? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And because we love them, we go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the, every creature, right? Compassion. 1980, in 1836, it's sort of interesting, nothing has changed. In 1836, young David Livingston, very famous missionary to Africa, heard Robert Moffat speak. Actually, he was the only guy at this very small meeting where Robert Moffat just had a few ladies and a young teenage David Livingston there. And Robert Moffat said this, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no one has heard the name of Christ. David Livingston was inspired by that and went and gave his life in Japan, and on Japan and Africa. Then and now, compassion drives us. And, and every trial teaches you compassion for somebody. Just a little bit more step in your life of learning compassion. That's why, I don't know, you've always been really compassionate to me, and I realize part of it, uh, Pastor Johnson has had some real trials over the years, and I know that as well. And, you know, it's, that's really that's true of all of us, right? Compassion. Secondly, faith in the Lord's glorious might. It's sort of interesting, you get to this little uh, passage uh, I'm going to skip over verse 50. It says in verse 51, And he went up with them unto the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. Uh, they shouldn't have been so wonder. They shouldn't have amazed, been that amazed, shouldn't they have? They had just seen Jesus with a few loaves and a few fishes feed 5,000 people. I mean, they should have said, well, you know, he can do that, right? Uh, they, 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 they 
still hadn't learned that it was all through the Lord's might that they could do anything. And they still need to learn that. Actually, if you read John's record, it says that everything stopped and immediately they were in Bethsaida. The rowing was done. The ship went from the middle of the Lake of Galilee and boom, they were in Bethsaida. They were there. They did nothing. From getting from that point to the Bethsaida, they did nothing. It was all the Lord. And really, that's us too, as missionaries. I was at a missions conference yesterday. Not yesterday. About two weeks ago. I don't know why I said yesterday. And, and the guy who said, led the missions conference kept calling us, the missionaries, heroes. And I was really just frustrated by that, that hero word. Because really, if there's, any, if there's anything I am, it's sort of like if there's like the military, you have the lowest grunt in, in the army or maybe one of the guys who lands in the Marines. I'm sort of on that level. That's where we are. We're just, I, actually, if I look at myself, I say I'm primarily a dud. But, you know, in the end, what I really know to the depth of my soul is no one has ever gotten saved because Bill is so good in preaching or teaching or evangelizing or is, you know, speaks so well or is such a master of Japanese. None of that. It's, it's the power of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that grabs these people and brings them to themselves as we share the gospel. I mean, it was just, if it was just Japanese ability, why would I be there? Just speaking ability, sure, we could get somebody better, right? In the end, it's the power of the Lord. And you'll never go out and you'll attempt something anywhere until you're convinced that, it's, that the Lord can save people even if you're sort of a dud. The Lord saves people. It's all because of the Lord's glorious might. And there's no missions, there's no going, there's no witnessing until you're just convinced that it isn't me. Because if you're convinced it's you, then you can come up with all sorts of things. I'm not going to have the right answers, I'm not going to know what to say, uh, they're not going to like me. You can just go on with this whole long list. To the end, you have to say, I have the responsibility, the best of my ability, to share the gospel. And of course, I want excellence. But I think it's the Lord's glorious might. He said, I will build my church. He said, no one comes unto, the Father, unto, unto me unless the Father draws him. Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Isn't that right? It's, it's, it's not me. It's the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, working in their great power and drawing these people who are dead in trespasses and sin and are blinded by Satan to themselves. And without that absolute conviction that the Lord is powerful enough to overcome any barrier, we will never go out. We'll never do. We'll never go. And before the disciples were able to become what they were to be, they had to be, have absolute conviction in the Lord's glorious might. That's us too. Now that's why their reality that day was exhaustion, danger, and fear. And that's going to be our reality occasionally too. And actually when Jesus appeared, they thought, they were seeing a ghost. Good advice for us, actually. Every time we're in the midst of trials, look for Jesus. He's there. And actually, in the midst of her, their trials, Jesus knew. He cared. He cared. He had a purpose in it. And they were safe until the trial was ended, really. And they were going to get to the Bethsaida because Jesus said, we're going to go to Bethsaida. They're going to get to Bethsaida. They weren't sure they were going to get to Bethsaida, but they are going to get there, man. And they said three things that every one of us needs to remember. And great, great words here. I mean, this is, this is your whole... I always thought I should do about it. When I, I'm 
prepared this, and I thought, I think I could do about a four-part series on this passage. But right there in verse 50, he said three things. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And that, you, know, you, just, you just put that over your door every time you go out. Those are good words, aren't they? Uh, I never had that as a memory verse, but that's about all you got need right there, right? Be of good cheer. In some ways, be of good cheer is sort of like don't quit. Yeah, I know you sort of like to quit here, but, you know, keep at it, man. Don't quit. And then secondly, it is I. This is the ego and me, which is so often in John where he says, I am. The Old Testament name of God. Why do you not have to fear? Because the creator of heaven and earth is right there with you. And lastly, lastly, be not afraid. And actually, the, the Greek is very, very clear. Stop being afraid. They were afraid. I mean, they're saying, ah, oh, it's a ghost. They were terrified, you know. Stop being afraid. It's I. I'm right there with you. It's a mer- in Japan as well. And this next little slide there. In Japan as well. Uh, we'll keep going more. I skipped over that just because of time. Keep going, keep going. In Japan as well, we have the same little thing that's such a cliche. Boku ga kimio mamoru. Yo. In other words, I will protect you. There's the hero he says to his girlfriend, I'm going to take care of you. And, you know, that's sort of a romantic thing comes up in movies, TV shows, and all that stuff. Or I am coming back. You ever hear that sort of line? And, you know, it's sort of nice and all that, but you know that's a bunch of nonsense. Nobody can promise that. You could die, die dead of a high attack the next minute. There's always somebody bigger, stronger, and tougher than you are. Yeah, I can't promise I'm going to protect you. I sure can't. No man can protect, promise that he can protect to, protect to the end any woman. I mean, there's no absolute promise there, is there? There is just isn't. The only person who can make this promise and stick to it and really be with you and not leave and take care of you is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ. So we're going to wrap it all up together. Here goes. The Lord's going to use trials in your life and mine from now on. And he's going to teach you all sorts of things, but almost every trial. I mean, there almost is no exception, is there? He's first going to teach you compassion, if you let it. And faith in his glorious light, if you let it. There's tool. So don't, don't wreck, reject them by running away or quitting or falling to self-pity or worry, giving in to anger or doubt. Remember that the Lord's plan for your life is best. The Lord is with me and cares deeply for me. And if in the midst of the trial, I'm faithful, continue to follow him, I'm going to learn of his glory, be more like him, and, and uh, learn more of him. It's sort of interesting, as I drive around I, in America, I'm always interested in the signs in front of churches. Some of them are just dumb. But, uh, but uh, one that I've seen quite often, and uh, next slide, by the way, one that I've seen quite often is uh, Come As You Are, which is actually not so bad. It, it, there's some truth to that. You know, I mean, Zacchaeus, you sniveling rotten scoundrel, uh, you can come to Christ as you are, and you can come to church as you are, and we'll accept you as you are. But the message of the gospel has never been, stay as you are. It isn't. Uh, we're responsible to change. And if you really are a Christian, from the moment you trust Christ, you're saved, you're going to be saved, and you're going to be 
safe for all eternity. God is going to start working. The Lord's going to start working in your life, and he wants to teach you all sorts of things. He's going to use trials sometimes. But among those things, without any doubt, he's trying to teach you is compassion and faith in his glorious might. And it's the things that you absolutely need to learn to represent him in the world and be a witness and go, right? Yep, there it is. And uh, change me and start with me, Lord. That's my prayer. Let's close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you very much for your goodness. Lord, help us to have tremendous compassion on the people around us and teach us day by day faith in your might, not ours. We love you. Start changing me to start with and all of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.